Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Well, hello and welcome wherever you are in our great country or around the world, as a matter of fact. Uh, as you heard, this is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel, and I'm always excited to be with you for another edition of All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. We get into various issues. We try to show people, yes, we understand that there are some bad things happening in the world, but there are a lot of good things happening, too. And we try to dig in and, and get underneath the surface to, to show you that things really are working within our system and elsewhere. So you can find that by spending an hour with us each Friday morning. 10 o'clock Eastern Time or 7 o'clock Pacific, and we'll take on one of the issues of the day, many of which are just not understood, not even discussed much by our so-called leaders, and you're going to get that sense of optimism and be able to, to join us and help us thrive, because if we join together putting these values into play, we will literally all rise together. Today, the subject is going to be a little bit different. It's not political, but it's something that people should be aware of, and I call it psychiatry in motion the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, I have uh, the good and the wonderful here with me as a guest, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Thomas Graydon, G-R-A-Y-D-E-N. And to show a little bit of my background with him, that I was a sitting judge on the mental health calendar for several years. And, of course, they, we have in the state of California the ability to actually put someone in confined in a hospital if necessary. It's called under Welfare and Institutions Code Section 5150 or 5150, as we call it. And I had literally the power to have somebody strapped down and injected with, uh, with the various medications, which uh, would uh, certainly get people's attention, but I wouldn't do that unless I would have guidance from a professional. And the guidance that I had most of the time was for, from a forensic psychiatrist named Dr. Tom Graydon. And I listened and would be be interested in what he would say, but as the time went along, I really became to value his opinion greatly, rely upon his opinion greatly, and uh, he's just part of that administration, the the system in effect, that uh, is really, I feel, working quite well, and is, to a large degree is misunderstood. So who is this fellow? He's our guest today. Well, he uh, did his got his medical degree, as I understand it, from the University of Minnesota with honors. Uh, good for you, Tom, not surprising. He did his internship at University of California at Davis and his psychiatry residency at the University of Southern California Medical School and at the University of California at Irvine. So he gets around a little bit, is now actively working at College Hospital as well as the Children's Hospital of, of Orange County, which is a fabulous place as well. But uh, Tom, welcome. And uh, I don't know much about your background prior to your University of Minnesota. First of all, welcome to All Rise and welcome. But again, tell us a little bit about Dr. Tom Graydon. Where did, what, what's your background, Tom, and, and how did you get where you are? Yeah, so uh, first I just want to thank you, Jim, for allowing me to be on your program today. And 
I really uh, hope we'll have a, a good discussion. You said in your um, entry that uh, we we're going to be a little bit different today and not make uh, this have anything to do with politics. I do have to tell you, when you mentioned the good and the bad, I do feel that uh, in our country's uh, mental health system, we are kind of getting pulled into a lot of politics. I'm happy to discuss at least my opinions about that, the good and the bad about it. Uh, as far as my own background, I, I grew up in Minnesota, a Midwestern kid, and uh, my two older brothers uh, decided to be dentists, and uh, I didn't want to do that, so I went to uh, medical school instead and um, ended up uh, having a, a great time in medical school wanted to become a internal medicine primary care physician and my internship at UC Davis uh was really mostly involved doing uh, emergency room work uh, internal medicine coronary care unit neurology pediatrics and uh enjoyed a lot of it but I felt like I wanted to do something a little bit more with the brain uh I was offered to do a neurology residency there but I decided to choose to go down to UC Irvine because they had in their psychiatry department, they'd become very much a, more of a biologic type of uh, program where they're looking at uh, different forms of brain imaging, including even PET scans, which back in that time was quite new and innovative. And looking at, at uh, behavioral health treatment more in a medical model, and it seemed to interest me in that. And um, along the way, I did a elective in my fourth year residency at USC in their Institute of Psychiatry and Law, so I became intrigued in that area. Uh, there was a, one of the great teachers who was a JD, MD. Uh, he became quite famous because he had uh, uh, diagnosed somebody who uh, had murdered his son, and his son was a very famous singer. And uh, by just the interview, he told all of us that the person had a uh, brain tumor. It turned out after CT, MRI scans, he was correct. So I was pretty impressed with that. So I ended up doing my fellowship there in psychiatry and the law and then ended up going back to UC Irvine uh, where I've been clinical professor there for decades. I've retired and then I have now come back uh, to be volunteer faculty and in private practice as well, mostly hospital work. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm on my way to go to an emergency room uh, to see some patients who are having some sort of uh, behavioral health, uh, violent-like uh, behaviors, and for me to help the emergency room physician with that. So that's kind of where I'm at in my uh, in my career. I combine still teaching residents, medical students at UC Irvine, in private practice, and testifying in court as an expert witness in the area of um, behavioral health. And a truly expert witness you are, Dr. Tom, and, and the rest. So you decided, unlike your brothers, that you didn't want to spend your life with your hands in people's mouths. Instead, you wanted to get involved with their brain. So I think that was a good choice. Yes, that's true. I went up about uh, maybe 10 centimeters. Yes. <laughs> I guess that's right. So um, you've, you've told us where we met on the mental health calendar, and I was really impressed. And today, in my opinion, uh, psychotropic medication has come in for a bad name. Uh, and yes, it can be overdone. Yes, there are doctors that will simply kind of 
sedate people that are causing problems and, and over-sedate them for it. But, but I, I personally, I was on the bench for 25 years here in Orange County, California, and the only time I ever felt physically threatened was in the mental health calendar. I don't remember if you were testifying, it wasn't from you, but you were testifying or not, but there was a, a tennis pro who was out of from out of town, and he'd not brought his medications with him, and uh, he was really acting out. And I, he was only maybe five feet away from me or so, and I was kind of leaning away from him, and it was pretty bizarre. So I ordered that he actually uh, take these medications, which basically we'd, we'd find out what his meds were from his doctor and wherever he was from, and then I saw him again maybe... 10 days later, and we were joking about playing tennis, and I'd never win Wimbledon. I mean, he was just a normal human being. That, that The medications just allowed this fellow to live a normal life, but by goodness, if he wasn't on them, it was scary. And I've seen that you've probably seen lots of people like that, but tell us a little bit, because psychotropic medications do come in for, for bad press, and I, I'd like you to explain uh, a little bit more about that. Sure, I'd be happy to, Jim. So uh, my, my only thought about this was since uh, I'm in Southern California, um, any of the bad press really came about mostly by uh, certain groups uh, such as Scientology. And when you think about, well, why would Scientology be against pharmacologic treatments of brain conditions? Well, if you read the history, uh, they wanted to get into the field of providing mental health treatment. They wanted to be accredited by insurance companies, to be the providers of behavioral health within their institution of whatever Scientologists tend to believe. So, you know, like most things in life, you know, there's multi-facets of how things come about. Um, but short of that, I, I think anybody that's, you know, least reasonably educated would accept the fact that uh, uh, psychotropic medications are clearly uh, very much uh, of benefit to, to millions of people throughout the world. Um, you know, you go back to uh, the days of how did they treat mental health illnesses before pharmacologic managements. They did things that would be seen barbaric in our time. They would uh, chain people up. They would, uh, you know, if you go back to the time of uh, um, Aristotle, they would do trephanine. They would basically take a hammer and break the skull of an individual that was having a psychiatric problem, thinking that somehow these evil spirits would come out of the cranium. So I think we've gone quite far from those days, Jim, and... Uh, um, you know, advancements and uh, pharmacologic treatments have really uh, continued uh, through uh, certainly this decade. We have more and better treatments for various conditions. I would also say that I, I do provide a lot of lectures on psychopharmacology to primary care doctors. And really, if one were to look at the facts, uh, most psychotropic medications are not prescribed by psychiatrists. We're a fairly small subspecialty. Um, most of them are prescribed by family medicine doctors, internal medicine, pediatricians, emergency room doctors prescribe these medications all the time. They have people in the emergency room that come in highly aggressive on the community. They give them antipsychotic medications. They start antidepressants in the emergency room. People come in suicidal. So... 
Um, they're used really by many different uh, specialties in, in medicine. And um, there, there's we are having some advances of some non-pharmacologic uh, treatment modalities, which I'm happy to discuss about. Uh, so those are kind of exciting things. But um, the use of these medications are, are just uh, required. We really don't have many other alternatives. Well, there were times uh, not too distant past where we were actually using lobotomies, as I understand it, where we would actually kind of sever some some, uh, brain cells uh, in order to try to find what part of the brain was causing this misconduct. Uh, Is that done at all anymore, Dr. Graydon? Um, no, those are, um, haven't been done really for, for, for decades. Um, again, that was at a time when they didn't really have any other mechanisms of how to use, uh, treatments. I think, uh, the first, uh, psychiatric medication came out in the 1950s and, uh, it was chlorpromazine. And at that point they were looking at it as a, uh, uh, an anesthetic, uh, anesthesia type of medication. Uh, so before that, uh, people would be institutionalized for years and years against their will. And if they had, you know, behavioral health symptoms, sometimes they would uh, have cold sheets uh, put on top of them in order to calm them down. So a lot of these older treatments were quite barbaric. So with the advent of some pharmacologic uh, uh, approaches, uh, treatments became much more humane and and clearly uh, much more effective. You know, if my memory serves me correctly, and and I think it does, uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy's sister actually was subjected to a lobotomy. And that was, I don't know what time period, probably in the 30s, something like that. Uh, It's just the the benefits that we've gotten from our psychotropic medications just just are staggering from my standpoint. And people need to talk more about it without giving any names, of course, because you can't. But just give us a couple of success stories where you have been involved with uh, uh, medications and the symptoms and, and and uh, just just give us some, some some reason for optimism that really the uh, the state of the art is really quite helpful in most cases. Can you give us some success stories? Um, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, since I've been doing this for for quite a long period of time, I do have quite a bit few. A few of them kind of stick out in my head. I remember uh, there was a, a young girl that came into. Uh, uh, UCI, uh, the University Hospital at Irvine, and um, she had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, and she was hearing voices, and uh, just very psychotic. She had a number of suicide attempts, and um, she also had a very uh, severe case of uh, of acne. So her face, you know, had a lot of lesions. And her life was just really miserable, and I remember talking to the parents, and they felt uh, really hopeless about her. And so uh, we decided to go with a, a, a medication that's reserved really for people that have severe mental illness and other treatments, therapies, and medicines have never worked, which is a medicine called uh, clozapine. A reason why it's not used very often is it does have some toxicity on the bone marrow, it's rare, but it can happen. So if you administer this medicine, you have to do lab work every week and check their blood counts and their white blood cell counts. But I remember um, 
we did this, and I was hoping for the best, but, you know, statistically, uh, her prognosis was poor, but she had a phenomenal outcome, Jim, and uh, she uh, ended up um, becoming sane, no more hallucinations, she was able to go back to college, she eventually became a teacher, and... Um, I also was an advocate for her to get her help with her severe acne. She always felt very, you know, um, you know concerned about her appearance. So uh, I had uh, made several attempts to get some dermatologists to prescribe the Accutane, and there were some restrictions on maybe not giving it to people who had severe mental illness because maybe it would make them suicidal. But I got a dermatologist to work with me, and we collaborated together. So we got her on Accutane, and her skin healed up, like, magically. It was like a miracle. So to me, she had a miracle psychiatric medicine. She had a miracle dermatology medicine. Her mind cleared up. Her skin cleared up. And I remember she came over to UCI just to visit our clinic and see me. And uh, she had finished college and uh, became a school teacher and was functioning, having like a normal life. So that's, you know, it's one of those ones where you just think, can we really make an impact on this person? And then when you do, you just, you're just so happy for her. So I do remember that one, a lot of other ones too, but that was a special one. Of course. Uh, with someone like that, would she have to continue taking the clozapine uh, for the rest of her life, or can it be phased off, or, or what happens with, normally with regard to something like that? For conditions, severe mental illnesses like schizophrenia, you know, they're generally a lifelong uh, disorder, just like diabetes, hypertension, where she would be on some maintenance medicines. Uh, sometimes you can reduce the dose uh, to a lower dose if they're just in maintenance treatment. But generally speaking, it's it's a lifelong illness. Um, and the statistics, if you talk about what are the benefits of psychiatric medicines for schizophrenia, for example, um, if you don't have them on medicines, uh, statistics, statistics are within... Uh, 50% of people with schizophrenia off their antipsychotic medications will relapse within six months where they're so severe they're back in a hospital again. Mm. So for those kind of conditions, it's kind of chronic, just like you would with uh, insulin for somebody with diabetes. So you see... On the average, I don't know how many patients a week uh, in your forensic psychiatry, uh, what, 30, 20, something like that. Uh, what percent of those generally are you really able to help significantly? Um, I would say, Jim, it's probably um, uh, for, for the more severe uh, pe illness people where they're you know, need to be in a hospital setting, uh, either for schizophrenia or severe bipolar conditions. It's uh, generally thought to be a, a, a rule of thirds, meaning one-thirds will have a really good prognosis. They return to functioning in life, being able to have a family, a job. You have another third that will show improvement, uh, but will have some relapses off and on throughout. Uh, many times they can regain living independently, 
maybe some, some part-time work. And then there's another third where they're, they're improved where they're not having to be, live in a hospital anymore, but they have problems with being able to have their brain work effectively where they can hold down like a full-time job. Um, many times they do need some disability assistance to, to pay for a place to live. Uh, many times they'll live in a board and care or some sort of structured living situation. So for the more persistent, severe mental illnesses, I'd say it's the rule of thirds. Okay. Well, that's better than the rule of quarters. So you try to help people live to the highest level, I guess, that they would be able to function at. Uh, so some people are held involuntarily in, in uh, medical institutions, uh, locked facilities, uh, others, uh, and you're the one that really helps give information because uh, we as judges, I mean, that's not my field, and I don't want to have people locked up for having not committed some form of an offense, but you also don't want them to hurt themselves or others. So so I guess that the striving is to have them live up to their to their highest ability uh, to, to function. Is that pretty much correct? That is correct. I mean, our goal always is for treatment to provide treatment in the less restrictive setting. So if somebody has done something severe enough where they end up being brought in by police on a 72-hour hold and their symptoms are severe enough where they can't be treated within the three days and sent home. Our goal is always to try to get them to a, a less restrictive setting, outpatient treatment. And that happens in the vast, vast majority of people. We're talking about kind of a very small percent of people that end up having to be in a hospital for more than, you know, a few days or a week. Um, some of them go on to full conservatorships, which, you know, you were familiar with, with the law, but that's a small percent of people, uh, especially nowadays. Um, the difficulty I think is, is that as we transformed in California to have a lot of our chronic mental illness individuals be released from state hospitals, there was really not enough thought put into well, if they're not going to live at a state hospital, where are they going to live if their brain impairment is so severe that they can't really hold down a job? Maybe they're disenfranchised at that point in time from their family. Where are they going to live? How are they going to feed themselves? How are they going to get clothing? Uh, and that's, I think, the challenge that we have in California with the uh, tremendous drop in uh, available beds in any type of state hospital throughout the state of California and other states as well. Um, the hope was that, that there'd be, you know, readily available housing for these individuals, readily available uh, outpatient mental health treatment, and uh, that's really not happened. So unfortunately, you know, mental illness is very per pervasive in our homeless population. Well, it is indeed. And Dr. Tom, I, I actually went up to Camarillo State Hospital in California and boy, it was it was beautiful. It was nicely done from what I could tell. People were well treated. It's been closed down now. And, and like you say, so where do those people go? Well, not likely with their families. Many of them don't want to and they become homeless. And, and so that's it's it's just not working from that standpoint. Let me ask you uh 
Are there any, you are in the diagnosis business, of course, but are there any physical tests, medical tests that can be conducted to show what medications would likely be, be appropriate for particular patients? Or is it mostly pretty much educated estimates and trial and error with regard to diagnosing medical medication? Yes. So there are a lot of tests that we do do. I mean, uh, psychiatrists, we do try to keep our MD physician hat on. So when we're trying to assess somebody, if they're having a mood disorder problem or, you know, a mood swing, a bipolar condition, anxiety problem, insomnia problem, or in more rare cases, psychotic problems, we always try to rule out any medical causes. So we usually do blood tests. We check their blood count. We check for any signs of infection. We check to make certain they're not anemic from their lab work because that can sometimes mask as things like uh, depression. We check thyroid gland tests so that makes certain that they don't have an abnormal thyroid that's causing their disruption. Sometimes we'll get brain studies, CT scans, or MRI studies uh, just to make sure we're not missing the rare brain tumor or uh, abscess, that type of thing that might be causing the change in the mental status. So once we do that, and we're quite certain we've ruled out any medical causes for their illnesses, you know, then we can go on to the formal psychiatric treatment. Um, usually that's taking a history because sometimes... We'll look at family members. A lot of these conditions have a higher genetic risk factor, so we can assess if somebody else has had similar diagnoses. Have they ever had treatments that really work for other family members? If that's the case, they're more likely to work for that individual than if we just kind of blindly pick something at random, whether it's a form of talk therapy or specific type of medication. So that goes into the assessment. Sometimes we may get psychological testing uh, to uh, see whether or not we can try to pinpoint the diagnosis a little bit more clearly. Um, there's a number of rating scales. These are done either on paper or on a computer where we can try to come up with a more specific diagnosis. And I'm happy to say that it's routine now for um, primary care physicians that they use some of these rating scales to screen for uh, mental disorders. There's a thing called a PHQ-9 and a PHQ-2 where the primary care doctor or nurse practitioner does these questionnaires and ratings, and it can really screen for mental illness that they could either treat themselves or refer on to a specialist. So we do have that. Um, going forward now, we do have some higher-level um, technology that is being utilized. There are some functional um, uh, imaging studies of the brain, meaning that if we do a normal CT scan or normal MRI scan of the brain, we'll sh it'll show us the anatomy. It'll show if there's something abnormal like a brain tumor or abscess or something of that nature, but it doesn't show brain function. But now we have MRI studies that have, are called functional MRIs, so they'll actually show you what parts of the brain are not functioning correctly. I've been associated with UCI for a number of years, decades now, and uh, we were one of the first in the United States to have our own positron emission tomography brain scanner for the field of mental health um, 
at that wow. point in time, I think when UCI got it, we were one of 60 sites in the country. Now PET scans are all over because they're being used for cancer treatment. If you have a treatment for, say, lymphomas, PET scans are used routinely. Now we're using PET scans to do some other things, Jim. For example, really good. getting a PET scan of the brain right now is thought to be probably our most sensitive prognostic test to decide whether or not somebody's at risk of developing Alzheimer's dementia in the next 10 years. Boy, so we are improving just... on some of these tests um, as that well. That is just outstanding. That, that's just outstanding, yes. Dr. Tom. We're going to have to take a break for a moment, but there's help is on the way, I think, is the message that we're hearing. This is a profession. We're talking with a well well-appreciated uh, neuropsychiatrist here, forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Thomas Graydon, and we'll bring more optimism and health after these words. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. This is Judge Jim Gray again with my esteemed guest, uh, Dr. Thomas Graydon, also my friend. Actually, uh, one of his truly strongest accolades is that he is married to Michelle Graydon, who's a clinical psychologist specializing in neuropsychological assessment of both children and adults. Now, I have a son who is in finance, and his wife is a CPA, and I've told them, look, I don't want to listen to your dinner table conversation, but I'd be happy to eavesdrop on the con- conversation at dinner between Dr. Tom Graydon and Dr. Michelle Graydon, and I actually performed their wedding ceremony to my intense gratification. But uh, Dr. Graydon, you've, you've chosen well, and then again, so has she. Yes, I was uh, very lucky to uh, have Michelle come in my life and uh, very, very happy and blessed that uh, 
you uh, got us married, so I'm always uh, in debt to you. Well, it, it takes, you know, it's, it's a bonding that uh, I, I issue certified and guarantees. Uh, I've been asked by my wife just to throw a little bit of levity into these shows, uh, and maybe precious little, but I'll, I'll bring up a lexophile, and you understand that no matter how hard you push the envelope, it's still stationary. So that, that is my thought for the moment. But I'd like to come okay. back. Well, there, there we go. I got a chuckle. That, that's better than I usually get. But Dr. Graydon, <laughs> if a family member were to see bizarre or un, unpleasant behavior in a family member, uh, what should they do? Because, you know, they don't want to have their, their beloved one uh, put in, in jail or, or as they would leave, as they would see it in, in uh, some form of medical incarceration, but, but give them some tips. So what, what should they do to get more, more help, more hope? Uh, because it's something that a lot of us are feeling. I think uh, there are some good steps for family members to take. One is actually is to really engage in the individual, the idea that, um, not forcing somebody something on to them against their will, but the idea that their family is concerned and they want to help them, um, and maybe involving not just one or two family members like a parent. Sometimes a family friend, an uncle, might have a better approach to getting the individual to accept a mental health referral than a parent because, you know, sometimes there's issues going on there. So I think the more people you can initially get involved to help the person. Uh, second, in this day and age with managed care as part of our gospel for uh, health care these days, usually somebody has a primary care physician. And, Jim, I've been doing lectures to large groups of primary care physicians now for a number of years. Uh, I go to their groups. I do a PowerPoint slide presentation on how to assess, diagnose, and treat some basic uh, mental health disorders that they can do at that level, that they don't always have to refer out to a specialist. So there's a lot of primary care doctors that know about things like depression. They know about suicide. Pediatricians, if you look at our data on adolescents, uh, suicide is the number two leading cause of death in our adolescent population, just behind motor vehicle accidents. So there's getting more and more training uh, by our various doctors. So if sometimes an individual might be willing to see their family doctor about something and not wanting to go see a therapist or a psychologist right away. So if they can at least start with the primary care doctor and they can kind of start to collaborate together, sometimes that makes it a little bit easier for them accept, to accept a, like a mental health referral to go in and see somebody. I have a family member who's had some mental problems, and and I would talk with, with her. I would also, on the bench, tell people, look, you didn't do anything wrong. This was my approach, that you didn't do anything wrong. You have a chemical imbalance in your brain, and it needs some, some, some adjusting. Just like if you had diabetes, you didn't do anything wrong there. You have a, an imbalance with regard to your blood sugar. And try to explain it from that direction. And I found that that is really quite helpful. It's not threatening. You understand it, and, and you address that chemical imbalance. You can live a pretty much normal 
normal life because you're a good person. Uh, do you approach it kind of similarly, Dr. Graydon? Yeah, I think so. I think taking that uh, kind of medical analogy approach is helpful for a lot of people. But, you know, you have to realize that for decades we've had this stigma against mental illness. And I think we've come a long way in our society. But for a lot of people, it's still there. They don't want to admit it. It's like they don't want to admit that they are an alcoholic. They can admit easily they have hypertension. So these areas, these topics, a lot of people still don't want to accept and shy away from. Sometimes family members feel it's embarrassing if a family member is getting mental health treatment. You know, so it, it, it's not just the individual. It's the family dynamics, too, that may be a barrier for them getting help. Sure. Uh, you had mentioned earlier in our talk uh, here on All Rise that you feel that psychiatry is being pulled into politics. Uh, I, I have noticed myself that, that we're, we're having a lot of government officials, non-medical government officials, kind of purportedly start practicing medicine, issuing red flag warnings, telling them that, oh, we know more than you do. Is that what you meant by being pulled into politics? Or if no, please explain to us. Well, I would say, Jim, this has been going on for a long period of time. Um, you know, with, within the last few years, there's been a lot of uh, kind of accusations on both sides that somebody's, quote, unhinged. You know, what does that even mean anyways? You might disagree with their opinions uh, about where this country is going. So if you disagree with it, now it's the idea that that person has a mental problem, not just you disagree with their theory on life or their theory on politics. I think it's very dangerous to start doing these accusations that individuals have a mental illness. So um, when people start suggesting that, well, this person's got Alzheimer's dementia, uh, very dangerous, but this is nothing new, Jim. Uh, if you remember, going back to Barry Goldwater, a lot of people didn't agree with his politics. They thought he was very right-wing. And so instead of just trying to debate the issues, they started to suggest that Barry Goldwater was psychotic, demented, and they started to get some people in the field of mental health to come out and make a diagnosis, even though they've never even spoken to Barry Goldwater. And there's a lot of other people downstream, from Goldwater to Reagan, um, and it's typically been a little bit more of the conservatives, although people made fun of Jimmy Carter and his faith, you know, so it does go, cuts both ways. So there was a law that was passed, and it's, it's in... Maybe it's not a, a, a legal law like you'd be involved in, but at least a, a, an ethics code in the field of medicine where we're not allowed to diagnose somebody that we've never examined. And that was called the Goldwater Rule. So that was 1964 that started. And so I thought that people were abiding about that and just trying, you know, people that are doctors just trying to not get involved in the fray, but it just seems in recent years you have not just an individual doctor, but you have now groups of doctors from academic centers pooling together 
in giving an opinion that somebody suffers from a mental illness, and therefore they're not fit to run for office or be in office. It's very scary, Jim. Yes, it is. I, I fully agree. That's just, you know, it gets back to fear and money. Uh, you had mentioned Scientology, and I was going to interrupt you and say, are you kidding me? You mean money talks, Dr. Graydon? But, of course, that's the reality that we're facing in this world, and, and people use fear uh, for, for many means and, and frequently, of course, inappropriate. But but you one time mentioned to me, and I was, I was really interested in this, uh, the benefits of shock therapy uh, that you said at the time, and this was 10 years ago that we had this discussion or more, but said it's not painful, it's widely misunderstood. Uh, can you tell us and our, and our audience here uh, what you mean or if you still do? Is it still being used? Is it beneficial? Uh, what's, the, what's the status of shock therapy, electric shock? Sure. Yeah, so it's called ECT, ECT nowadays. It's electroconvulsive therapy. And all that means is that um, you apply a certain electrical stimulus on the scalp, so there's nothing inserted inside the brain, but it's just under the scalp of the individual in order to induce a very short seizure. The seizure threshold is about 20 seconds. Now, this is done, and it's been done now for decades, under full anesthesia so that when this is done, the person has an anesthesiologist there. They're put completely under as if they're having a full operation. So they're unconscious. They don't feel anything. When you see ECT done, uh, people think that there'll be a jerking motion and all that. There, there's nothing. You don't see anything because the person's under full anesthesia. All you see is, is that the doctor gets a little EEG strip, which shows that there was a seizure that was induced and for how many seconds it lasted. And that's it. So it's safely done. Uh, the risk of anesthesiology is extremely low. You know, I mean, we, we get anesthesia for all sorts of orthopedic injuries. So it's it, the risk is very low. Uh, in the older days when it first came out, there was kind of a higher risk of some sort of memory impairment afterwards. Uh, but if you look at the actual true medical literature, the memory impairment is usually around the several months that this procedure has been done, doesn't go forward, doesn't erase old memories. That's what the true facts are. Now, there's people that, you know, want to make claims against it, lawsuits and things like that, and say, well, they can't remember anything about their life anymore. But, but that isn't really the case. Now, ECT is used nowadays and for the last several decades is kind of last resort when talk therapies don't work, medications don't work. So it's still used. It's typically done, you know, in a hospital setting, so it's safely done with anesthesiologists there. The duration of treatment, they're usually between 6 to 12 of these, and then that's it. So it's not like it goes on and on and on. Uh, but for somebody that is extremely depressed, high risk of suicide, can be life-saving. Sometimes for older individuals, it's done because they can't tolerate medications to help their condition. So it's been done in that way. But I think now, though, the technology is starting to change, and we have some other approaches outside of ECT, which really are going to be very big advances 
and the uh, tolerability safety factors dramatically improve. A couple of those things that you may have heard about, there's something called TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which means that somebody comes in, they sit in a chair, looks like a dentist chair, and you have this little hood that's put around your your top of your uh, head, and they map out kind of a little, it takes about 30, 40 minutes to do a little bit of a brain mapping, nothing invasive, and then they apply a very mild trans, uh, magnetic field in this little hood that's around your head. It goes on for maybe 15, 20 minutes, and um, it's now FDA-approved for severe treatment-resistant depression, and actually the FDA just approved it, Jim, for severe obsessive-compulsive disorder. People that wash their hands 40, 50 times a day and they can't stop. Their hands are all red and bloodied. Uh, they count all day long where they can't even work. So it's kind of a breakthrough treatment. And then another new treatment that's being done is called ketamine. Ketamine is an anesthesia agent that's been used for years. We use it in the emergency room a lot. Um, and they found that if you give an IV infusion, which lasts maybe 30, 40 minutes, it can really suddenly dramatically improve severe depression. Uh, so the FDA now just approved this ketamine called S-ketamine, and it's a nasal spray where you can go into a doctor's office and have to be certified to be able to do this, and you do a nasal spray, and you're in the doctor's office for like, a couple of hours just to be observed, but it's approved also now for severe uh, depression and uh, uh, also they're looking at other approaches. Ketamine is being used off-label for some pain syndromes, uh, migraine headaches, that type of thing. So um, a lot of new advances that I think are, are really exciting. You know, what is the functional result from these shock therapies? Does it does it change the synapses in your in your in your neurons, or uh, what? What is it that physically helps someone uh, when they get that treatment? Yeah, so it was it was found that when people had a seizure on their own from epilepsy or some other medical cause, that after their seizure they felt remarkably calm rested, not depressed. So it was kind of anecdotal findings. So that's how they started with the idea, of, well, why can't we induce a seizure safely for somebody and get the same improvement? But this has been used now for, for decades, Jim, and believe it or not, they still don't know exactly why it works. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of changes in uh, neurotransmitters, uh, such as dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine levels after ECT. Uh, they've looked at some brain imaging studies, changes in areas that are usually seen uh, when people uh, have severe depression, for example. But the exact mechanism of action remains elusive. Huh. Well, that's an honest answer. <laughs> that's, that's just amazing. You know, Dr. 
without engaging in pop psychiatry, but, but we have seen a rash of random shootings, killings around our country, uh, and really elsewhere too, but we as a society, I think, simply must label people that do this as mentally ill or insane or whatever, but, but can you help us? Are there any warning signs that any of us should keep in mind to try to discern a potential terrorist before they open fire? Anything you can give us guidance on? Sure. Um, I wish that I could tell you something that, you know, is medically sound uh, and well-researched, but I have to be honest that this whole area of predicting future violence, Jim, is really difficult to do. It just is. Um, So... What we do, we make threat assessments all the time. I'm in the emergency room a lot, making threat assessments of if somebody's going to be violent to themselves or somebody else. So there's no lab test. There's no scan that we can do. We've done some brain scans on people who've committed murders, and there's some abnormalities, but it's not enough to be kind of uh, useful as a, as a predictive tool. So one of the things that we have to look at is the most predictive value to this day, after all these years, of future behavior is recent past behavior. So if you have somebody that was recently violent, that is a risk factor. Now, that's kind of vague and broad, but it is a risk factor. Um, if somebody has become cruel to animals, that's still thought to be a risk factor that somebody's at a higher risk of being violent. As far as dangerousness to themselves, do they have a history of suicide attempts? Is there a genetic family history of suicide attempts? Um, so these are kind of risk assessments that are done Um, you might remember this old case as Barefoot versus Estelle, which was 1983 U.S. Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court found that, yes, psychiatrists can assess, and it would be accepted in court as far as predicting violence. But back in 1983, our success rate was only about 33%. Nowadays, in more recent literature, it's about maybe 60, 70% in the best studies known. So that's better, Jim, but we're missing one out of three. Yeah. Well, uh, and ex- that's with people that are doing thorough, thorough assessments. So my I, concern is with the discussion of these red flag warnings that lay people are going to be calling up, you know, police saying, I think this person is an imminent threat. I'm telling you, as a person that's well-trained to do these assessments, I'm not very good at it. And so if you take somebody who doesn't even know how to do some risk assessments, they're going to be worse. And my worry is we're going to have a lot of people calling the police saying their neighbor, their jolted lover, their coworker are imminent threats of danger. I think this could get out of hand by the government. 
I, I think that's a really legitimate concern. I, I suppose, though, if somebody is sending out emails or keeping journals saying, you know, I think that every Eskimo in the world should be uh, done away with and then buys a ticket to Alaska, maybe something like that would get our attention. But, but otherwise, it, it's my opinion, and I, this is not my field, that all of these red flags are, are afterwards. Oh, you should have seen such and such. But, but you can't predict. You just look at it afterwards and say, well, you should have done something. So like you say, we're just getting into politics. Back, back Dr. Graydon, when I was in law school, uh, science was close, as I understood it or was taught, to having the ability to literally plant electrodes into the brains of like pedophiles, for example, that, that would, if they even thought about sexually molesting a child, would definitely give them an electric shock. Uh, I don't know if that was accurate. I don't know if we could do that now. Uh, is that true? Um, no, that's not true. They never were able to implant any electrodes in, in anybody. Now, uh, nowadays, uh, neurosurgeons are doing some sort of implants in parts of the brain to help with, like, severe depression. It's very kind of interesting technology on that. But as far as to control somebody's thoughts, uh, it's not the case. And the pedophiles... They have done some what they call aversive conditioning, um, where I think years ago they did some sort of a kind of electrical stimulus as a negative if they were aroused by pictures of, say, young children. Um, that's not really done uh, now. What, what is done is people that are high risk of being a sex offender, uh, if they're mandated by the courts, they can be put on medications that are hormone treatments to basically uh, change their estrogen testosterone levels. And actually, some of those have been pretty helpful for decreasing some recidivism. But there's no real electric shock therapy as a punitive thing to have aversive conditioning now. I was... Uh... It's good to hear because I was fearful that if somebody thought voting libertarian, they'd get a shock, an electric shock in their brain. Uh, that would cause me some concern. However, voting elsewhere might not. That's my attempt at humor. But uh, to go back a little bit. I remember frequently when you were testifying in my court, you'd talk about lithium levels. And I, I, lithium goes back really quite a ways, and I think it's still being used. But, but I'm not taking any injections. Maybe some people think I should be of, some, of substances. But do I have a lithium level that would be tested in my blood just as a modestly normal person? Or is it only if you're actually being administered lithium that it would be detected? Yeah, lithium is a, a trace mineral like magnesium, many other minerals. So the amounts in our body are extremely, extremely small. There's no test for it just to see what it is. Uh, it's really only blood tests are only done if you're actually on medications. So even though that lithium is an older medicine, it's been around for, you know, since the 1960s, um, it's still being used. Uh, the FDA's approved it actually to used to decrease risk of committing suicide. Uh, so it still has some value, even though it's an older medicine. Well, again, what, what are we going in the future? You're pretty much on that cutting edge. You're doing research into PET scans, as I understand it, PET brain imaging and MRIs. But do you see revelations coming in the modestly near future that will even give us more help, Dr. Tom Graydon? I do think so, Jim. I think that we're, we're looking at other models 
for what is kind of the real underlying cause of some of these uh, major mental disorders. Um, you know, we've treated depression for quite some time on medicines that modulate our own serotonin levels, but research now is really more about um, immune systems and um, cortisol levels, uh, inflammatory responses. You know, the rest of medicine is very involved with inflammatory processes in our body, and that may be one of the more common things why things go wrong with our health. And in mental health, we're looking at those as well. So there are some research studies looking at that. Uh, so they're looking at other modalities of treatment than what we have. Genetics is a big area of research, uh, and now there are some tests called, one is example, gene testing where our gene site, where you can actually just get by a simple swab of your uh, oral mucosa, like you're doing a 23andMe type of test. It'll actually show you how you metabolize certain medicines, so it might help us fine-tune which medicines uh, to choose when we're trying to help somebody. So we're, we're getting there. Uh, it's slow, but I think there's been progress. Well, let me say on behalf of myself and society, Dr. Tom Graydon, that we're all glad that you did not go along with your brothers and become a dentist because you have made really substantial contributions to us all. And just in this last hour that we've been able to, you've been able to spend with us, you've given us a lot of hope, a lot of understanding, and, and also further solidification that a lot of people out in our society today, uh, money cocks, as we as we were saying, and also fear is a great way to move people one way or the other. But there is nothing to fear, particularly about the psychiatry profession. Uh, yes, some are better than others. I will even confess, because it's just between us fence posts, is it not, Dr. Tom? Maybe even some judges are better than others, but, but we're making progress. <laughs> there is... <laughs> Where there is, there is I might have here. to take the Fifth Amendment on that, Jim. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, the Fourth and the Sixth, too. Why not? But, but you know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're doing well. Tom, you're a friend. You're a good man. It's really appreciate on behalf of my audience as well as, uh, as the rest of our, of our world. Uh, thanks for what you're doing. We're appreciative of that. You are helping people. It's got to be enormously gratifying to you to be able to stir people's lives back into the best that they can be. So there again, you have it. This is All Rise, where if we understand that psychiatry is there, is helping just hundreds of thousands of people here and around the world. Uh, we can all rise together to live our best life that we're able to live. And Dr. Thomas Graydon is one of those employing libertarian approaches. Yes, solutions, education, discussions, responsibility. And when he doesn't know something, he says so, unlike a lot of people in this world. So that's what we do here on All Rise. We are all Americans. We are all trying to live our lives as best we can for ourselves and our family, and we will do so by employing these libertarian values. So that's another edition we have. Thanks to Dr. Tom, and thanks to you for listening. And in the meantime, this is Judge Jim Gray saying, life is good. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my thoughts that help us control.